Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. If you're planning a trip to Italy, or like me, you just wish you could go to Italy, you'll love today's guest. Elizabeth Minchili is an American journalist living in Rome. She started her career as an architecture journalist, but a few years ago shifted her focus to food, and now she writes books and leads food tours in her adopted home country. We'll put a link to her website in the show notes in case you're interested in checking out what she has to offer. In her latest book, The Italian Table, she shares menus she's enjoyed in different parts of Italy. Here's Elizabeth Minchili and The Italian Table. Thank you. This is great. This is the first time I'm in Seattle, so I'm really excited to have been here for slightly less than 24 hours, but I, I really appreciate the nice weather you all planned for me. I had a great walk today. And before I, I get directly to the book, because a lot of people have the same questions about me, I thought I'd start talking about me and just sort of how I got to this point in this book, because it, it really has everything to do with, with why I decided to write this specific book. I'm American, and everybody says, oh, but you have such an Italian name. Your parents American. It's like, no, Eastern European Jews from St. Louis, and has nothing to do with Italy, except for the fact that when I was 12, my parents went to Italy, and they did Florence, Venice, and Rome, and they came back to St. Louis, and uh, they thought, what are we doing here when we could be living in Rome? And they sold our house and sold our business, and we just moved to Rome for two years, which now that I'm of a certain age, and, you know, I've had children of my own, I cannot believe they did that. You know, how, I mean, how totally traumatic for me as a 12-year-old, but how totally brave of them to have done that. You know, at first I was very, um, you know, upset as a 12-year-old to pack up my toys and go there, but I obviously, as soon as we landed, it made a huge impression on me, and I have two little sisters, and I think that all of us were at an impressionable age, but especially me, you know, I was 12 and 13 years old, and and so we lived there for two years, and then we moved back to the States, to the New York area, New York and Connecticut. And um, I, I was always trying to get back to Italy in some way, I think. I never felt as at home as I did when I was in Italy. And we did come back in the summers, which was really great. My dad had a, a business where he was free for two months in the summer. And um, so we went to Italy. There was a period... Politically, it wasn't so safe in Italy, so we went to other countries, always in Europe. And um, by the time I got to graduate school, I, I got uh, to the time when I actually had to pick out my dissertation topic and thought, okay, okay, this is it. If I, you know, plan this right, I can get somebody else to give me a big check and send me over to Italy. And I did. <laughs> I decided to, I was already kind of going in the direction of architecture and Renaissance architecture, specifically 16th century Renaissance architecture, specifically 16th century garden architecture. And then finally, there was three square meters in the Bovely Garden in Florence that was my dissertation topic. And, um, and it was great. I was, I, you know, some, somebody paid me to go live in Florence and have this cute little apartment with a fresco on the ceiling. At the time, the, the state, the archives were in the basement of the Uffizi which wasn't such a good idea because of flooding and everything. But at the time, that's where they were. And, um, and I basically spent two years, you know, reading 16th century shopping lists of the Medici, which was really cool. And, you know, deciphering them and seeing how that worked out with the gardens. And it was great. And I loved it. I loved it. And in the afternoons, I would go shopping. And one of the first things I did when I got to Florence, I had a kitchen, which 
about the size of this piece of wood here. I went and bought Marcella Hazan's cookbooks at the paperback exchange, two used little cookbooks. It was a purple one and a green one, little paperbacks, and with no illustrations, and, and you know, it wasn't hardback. And, and I cooked my way through both of them. Even though I cooked since I had an easy-bake oven, I was a cooker from early age, and I cooked for my family in high school, and I was the, that was that annoying roommate who made everybody buy the ingredients for the dinner that I wanted to make in college. Um, but this was the first time I really had my own little kitchen, and I, I sort of was empowered by going to the market and, and not knowing what anything was, really, and you know, learning the words for things, which were different from the words I'd learned in Rome. You know, in Florence, they have different names for things. And then bringing those things back and, and, and following Marcella's instructions and hoping she approved somewhere, you know, that what I was doing, it was wonderful. And, and then the, the check ran out. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, now I have to go back to the States. I have to, like, write this dissertation. And, and you know, if everything, you know, the goal was to get a job somewhere. If I could get a job in academia, I was probably going to be somewhere it certainly wasn't going to be in Florence. <laughs> it certainly wasn't going to be in Italy. And, and I thought, you know, am I that committed to academia? It's like, no, I'm not. Um, I love all the research. I love what I'm looking at. I love writing about it. I loved writing about it. But I didn't want to teach, and I didn't want to, to do, have that life. And luckily, at that point, I literally ran into my husband, <laughs> who wasn't my husband at the time. Domenico, my father, introduced us. Within like a month and a half, I knew I was marrying him. He didn't. <laughs> but I, I, told, I told my sisters, I told anybody who would listen, you know, I'm marrying this guy. And, and, he, and, and then eventually told him too. <laughs> and, um, and so within a year, I had my Italian husband. I moved to Rome to be with him. And I had an Italian baby, Sophie, and, uh, and an Italian dog and, and, you know, the whole thing. Well, the problem was, what was I going to do now? And in theory, you know, I had all these notes, like, literally hanging over my head. I should write my dissertation. I should write my dissertation. But in the meantime, I started being approached by magazines, like Art, Art News, Art and Antiques, Architectural Digest. And they started asking me to write about all the things I loved. And instead of, like, in college, you know, where you pay people to let you write, you know, these people were actually paying me. And I thought, oh, my God, this is my dream job. And so I started writing about things like gardens. I wrote my first book was on ceramics. I wrote a series of five books on interior design and architecture. And I also wrote for magazines. And, and this was, I don't know if anybody here is reading Ruth Reichel's current memoir about the golden age of gourmet. It was like that. It was like people paid you a lot of money to write for magazines, which seems incredible now. I mean, it was, it was so recent, but I was lucky enough to be part of that. And, you know, people would see, they'd say, oh, you know, we need an article on Portugal. Here's your plane ticket, and you can stay in these hotels. And, and yeah, it was great. <laughs> and, and plus, here's money for the article. But I became predominantly known for the books I was doing on architecture and design. Private Rome, Private Tuscany, Villas on the T Italian Lakes. I, I did two books on restoring houses in Italy, one of which was co-authored with my husband. When the sixth book came out, Italian Rustic, and this was 2010, and I don't know if you guys remember the financial crisis. Um, and also, it was the internet had happened, you know? And, and at first, the internet was so great because I was used to, in my career, I would actually take briefcase full of transparencies up to London, to New York, and go show them to editors and pitch stories physically in offices. And so all of a sudden, the internet came and I could, like, you know, send these things via, you know, these magic airwaves and, and, and get jobs like that, which at first was great. And then all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't because I went from writing four or five features a month to writing maybe two features a year, very quickly. I mean, I could have continued writing for free or, or next to free, and I just didn't want to do that. So when my book came out, my, my editors, 
I remember so clearly, you know, I'm sitting in this office and my book hadn't been published yet and I'd handed it in, it was all approved. They said, well, the good news is we're still gonna publish your book. I was like, great, thank you very much. Uh, the bad news is we don't think anybody's ever gonna buy books again. Yeah, this is 2010, and, and we don't know. People aren't going to spend a lot of money on books. You know, your books are expensive to produce. You're, you charge to, you know, this amount of money. You all do. We don't have any PR in, anymore, in-house PR. It's gone. So we suggest you do these things if you want to sell your books. And I was like, okay, you have to start this thing called a blog. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, uh, what's that? And I sort of had heard about blogs, and I thought, oh, that's where people go to rant about politics. Because there was uh, the really famous blogs at the beginning were all in DC. And I thought, oh, that's weird that they want me to do that. And then, um, and then I found you know, the few other food blogs that were around, David Leibowitz and Hardwin Cookbooks and, and, and a few others. And then they suggested I do this really new thing called social media. <laughs> Facebook was, was pretty new and, and Twitter, I think, was like less than a year old. And they said, do that that should help and you, it'll promote your book. And so, so at the beginning, the blog was about design and, and it was so boring. It was like, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think my sisters pretended they read it maybe, um, but I realized that it was boring because I was just so over talking about couches. You know, I had nothing more to say about, you know, stone walls and, and, and I mean, I, I'm interested in them. My, you know, my husband's an architect and I have friends. I didn't have any more stories to tell. They weren't coming naturally. And I looked to social media. I embraced social media like immediately because uh, I'm really social. <laughs> and all of a sudden I had real contact with people and, and I, conversations with people that read my work that, you know, because in the meantime, the blog started changing and I was reacting to what they were asking me. And they were asking me things like, oh, do you salt an eggplant before you cook it? You know, what's the best way to cook a pumpkin? What's your favorite restaurant in Rome? Where, what time of year should we go to Sicily? And so there were travel and food-related questions. And so my, my blog, which I adamantly treated like a business, even though it was paying me nothing, sort of turned to food. And I was blogging three times a week, all about food, recipes and restaurants mostly, and some travel. And, you know, I'd, I'd spend a lot of time on it. And I started doing the photography. And my husband was like, get a job, <laughs> you know, because this was going nowhere. And I said, just wait. Um, it will turn into something. I know it will turn into something. I just have this feeling because what else am I going to do? I mean, I was in Rome and I'm not going to teach. And I didn't want to, I didn't think I wanted to do uh, some of the things my friends were doing, like do tours and historical tours. And so I just did it. And then I was approached by a company to write an app, Eat Italy. It was the first app about eating in Italy in English to be published, and I went on to, to cover a lot of other cities. The funny thing was, is I, people started asking me also, could you take us around Rome and show us what to eat? And I was like, could that be a job? <laughs> you know? Could I charge people for this? And at the time, food tours weren't a thing. I mean, now you have, you know, you go to the market here, any market, and it's like, it's like food tour gridlock. Back in 2011, there weren't, there were like three people I knew doing food tours. One was in Paris, one was in Istanbul, and another one, uh, weirdly enough, was in Chicago. But I started doing that, and that actually has turned into a huge business. But the funniest thing was, is, you know, all of this started because nobody is buying books anymore. And, um, well, it turned out the people reading my blog were publishers. And it took about three years. And then I got a call from a publisher. 
who said, hey, you want to write a book about your blog? <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure. And, and that was Eating Rome. And so that was the, uh, the first sort of book that went in that direction. And it was a, I think the technical term was nonfiction narrative. And because it's a bit memoir, it's a bit guidebook, and it's also recipes. And it's all about me eating in Rome and my life of eating in Rome. And so each chapter has a theme, you know, whether it's coffee or olive oil, and, and tells stories, because it's always stories. And, and then Eating My Way Through Italy took off where Rome left and sort of went further. I have strong opinions about tourism in Italy these days, and which has very much to do about this book, too. And I know you guys have been reading in the paper lately, you know, like Venice is charging people to go into it. Um, People in Sicily are giving away houses for one euro. You have no idea how many emails I get about this. Like, should we buy one? And, um, you know, it's all to do with the fact that the towns that, we, that I know and love in Italy, Florence, Venice, Rome, places like, you know, Siena and, and Perugia are just super crowded with tourists. And that's just because there's more tourists in the world. So there's just more people in the world and there's more people traveling and there's more Americans traveling. And, um, and so my, eating my way through Italy suggests ways to follow your appetite to other places. Because there's so many amazing places where nobody goes in Italy. And Italy is one of the most touristed places in Europe. But just by following, deciding, oh, I'm going to go find that old woman who makes this one kind of pasta in the hills of Sardinia as your aim, you're there in this place and you are the only person who speaks English and nobody knows what you're doing there and it's fantastic and, and you learn something new and you have a, a, a cultural experience that's, I, I hate using the word authentic, but, it, but that means something still, I think. Which gets me today to this book, The Italian Table. This was a book that I first, I think it's been in my head for a long time, longer than I knew. And I was at, having lunch with an editor in New York. It wasn't a business meeting, it was just two friends having lunch. And, and then he said, well, you know, I am, I'm, at, I'm at Rizzoli these days, so if you have a book idea, now's the time to tell me. Do you have a book idea? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> I want to write the Italian dinner party handbook. And it's like, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, I had not thought about this, I thought. And he said, well, what's that about? I said, well, I think I, people are really curious about how Italians really eat in real life. And they're also interested in the cultural context of food. And by that, I mean not just the history, and I don't just mean a big head note. I mean the physical cultural context. They want to know, okay, yes, there's spaghetti on the plate, but what about the plate that it's sitting on? What's that fork? How do you use that fork to get it off the plate onto somebody else's plate? What about the linen? What about the house you're in? Or not a house. What if it's a shack on the beach? And so why are these things eaten at certain times? And, um, I mean, everybody knows about the Mediterranean diet, but I think it's the cultural aspect of it that really is different. And, you know, Italians, when they are discussing food, and they discuss it all the time, you know, they take it very, very seriously. But also, they don't take it seriously at all at the same time. It's not something that's just like, it's not precious. It's just part of their life. And they take it a bit for granted and not for granted at all. And, and, and those contradictory... Uh, sort of feelings and way of, of, of regarding foods are, are some of the things that I wanted to discuss in this book. And so the book itself, because a lot of people say, oh, do you cover all of Italy? Well, I would love to cover all of Italy, but originally in my, in my original outline, I had 24 meals. 
and that got cut down real fast to 12. Because at first I thought it was going to be this little handbook type thing, and then once they saw the pictures, they wanted it to be bigger, and, and because there's more pictures, there's less words. And anyway, 12 meals. Do you know how hard it is to pick 12 favorite meals? In Italy, it's like impossible, and I eat a lot of meals. So I, uh, I, I narrowed it down with a couple of criteria, one of which I, I did want to cover as much physical territory as possible. So, you know, there is a meal in Venice, there is a meal in, in Sicily, there is a meal in Puglia, and then a lot of meals in central Italy, but also there's a meal, you know, in a Renaissance garden, there's a meal on the beach, there's a meal on a Roman terrace. So I really, you know, like from the beach to the terrace to the garden. I, re I really tried to be uh, as geographically diverse as possible. And then I also wanted to pick different kinds of eating, uh, different kinds of meal. I didn't want every meal to be a nonna cooking pasta because that's not what Italy's about at all. I mean, every nonna cooks pasta, believe me, but we're not eating it every single day. Italy has changed too. And, um, and I wanted to explore some of the ways that might be surprising <laughs> to people. And you know, like, for instance, there's one chapter about pizza in Rome. And, you know, and I've seen, I've had pizza here in the, in the States and I see how people eat pizza and I see how people order pizza. And I'm not talking about, you know, really high-end artisanal pizza. I'm talking about, you know, double cheese crusted pizza. <laughs> you know, those things that, that, that people think of it and, 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 you know, they're huge. And instead, in Rome, there's a kind of pizza that you eat, and you go into a store, and it's pizza taglio, and you buy one little slice, and you pick it out, and you, you eat it in between, like if you're in between work, one appointment and the other, in between classes, it's often students who eat it because it's inexpensive, it's very healthy because it's the dough, and it's risen 48 hours, and then it's a minimal topping, most of which are vegetables. It's sort of, I wanted to not only explore the recipes, which I do, but I wanted to show pictures of people actually eating it, and there they are, they're just standing up, and they're, you know, on a little rickety table. But I also wanted to show how you, how you serve it, and it's always on a piece of wax paper that, like, um, the pizza almost slips off of it with a, with a napkin that really doesn't absorb, and you have, like, a really, you know, plastic glass of probably Coca-Cola or a beer. And, you know, you never have wine with pizza, and also because it's the middle of the day, maybe you don't want something that, that alcoholic. And um, so I wanted to share that. And the way that I do also is by um, having a whole menu, and then I have uh, a game plan. And each chapter has a game plan, because I think that a lot of people are scared of entertaining at home these days. It's really not easy to have people over to your house and cook after work. I mean, everybody works, and it's really hard to plan uh, shopping and then cooking. And so I give you the game plan. I say, okay, by Thursday, you should have ordered all your food. You know, by Friday, you know, put the dough, mix the dough, which only takes two seconds to mix, put it in the fridge. It'll rise in 48 hours. By the time your guests come, you know, prep all the ingredients on Saturday morning while you're at it, set the table. And so the, by the time your guests come, you're sitting on the couch with a Negroni, as you should be. And entertaining shouldn't be stressful. And, and all of the, the meals, you know, where I was and documented, none of the hosts were stressed out, ever. And each meal, I have to say, a lot of people ask how I plan, you know, plan them out. And I didn't plan them out at all. I knew I was going to go somewhere and have a meal. And I know I was going to ask questions. And I knew I was going to photograph it. But I didn't know if it would work out to be in the book because you never know. And I also didn't tell people, oh, I'd like you to make this and this and this and this because I'd like these recipes in the book. That's just the recipes that turned out that they served that day. It's really funny because in the end, once it was all together is when I saw 
how it how it came together or didn't come together. I mean, in funny ways, because there's a chapter here on a farm in Puglia. That was the time when I went with my whole family and we're staying at this farm and, and I was, you know, talking to the woman and I said, well, let's, I'm going to photograph the lunch you make today. Make an antipasto, make a pasta, because we'll eat it and I'll just, I'll use that, whatever you make. And so she did it. It was gorgeous and it was delicious and, and wonderful. And I took my pictures and they were even better than I thought. And, and then I got the recipes, you know, I transcribed my notes and I wrote it all up. And then finally, once I had it all written, I looked at it and I said, oh my God, every single recipe has the exact same five ingredients in it, but put together in different ways. And you would never, I never realized this until the end. And, 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 and so that's sort of the magical thing. And, and that's exactly how they eat in Puglia. It's like it, at any given day, there's five ingredients that show up over and over because that's what's in season. And then other things that I learned were even sort of smaller things that I could never have learned had I not been there at that time. I did include one chapter with a nonna cooking a big Sunday meal because I had to. And of course, it's near Parma because that's where all the nonne live, seemingly, that make all these pastas. And, and so I did. And she, you know, was a wonderful woman. And, you know, she's like talking. And in two seconds, she had rolled out the ravioli, you know, like, like with her eyes closed, basically. It was just incredible. And she did some other kind of technically interesting things, like she rolled up a roast with egg in it and stuff. But the thing that got me that day was that, you know, I'm following everything. And, and I'm, it's, I was, I'm the photographer the, for the book, so I had to be, like, both taking notes and, and photographing things. So some things I think I miss sometimes. And so I had her, I thought I'd miss something because she's taking the ravioli, which seems so precious and light and wonderful, and she's putting them into boiling water. And then she's scooping them up, you know, like batch by batch, doing them in about five batches, putting them in this really deep bowl. I thought, well, that's really weird. Like, they're going to all smush together and just become a clump. And she, you know, put butter in it. And she did it more and more. I'm thinking, this is going to be a hot mess. It's not going to be in the book and whatever. And then we get to the table, and it's a beautiful embroidered tablecloth and you know, with pink roses, and it's just beautiful. She takes this bowl, and then she, she takes her fork, her, just her fork there, and she starts serving everybody one tortellini at a time, treating them like little jewels. And it's like... Oh, yeah, of course you know what you're doing. <laughs> You've been doing this all your life. And those are the kind of things that still give me chills, you know, when I, when I think about it. And they're the type of, of experiences that I really wanted to communicate. So what I'm hoping that the goal of this book will be that, you know, you'll go home and really cook from it and entertain with people. But what I want to also stress is that do your own thing, too. You know, I'm giving you the blueprint how Italians eat, the feeling, the joy, you know. Sometimes there's a fluorescent light bulb above where you're eating, you know, in the picnic table as you're chomping on your porchetta. And there's plastic plates and there's, you know, knives that don't really work and that's part of it. But then with the ingredients, and a lot of people ask me about ingredients, especially, uh, you know, I've been on book tour and I've been uh, in situations, a lot of situations where other people are making my food on this book tour. And they get really nervous, you know, like, Elizabeth, I couldn't find this, or Elizabeth, I couldn't find that. And, and there was a dinner in uh, one of the first dinners I did a few weeks ago in, in D.C. It was at the National Press Club, and it's got this wonderful restaurant, and this Susan, who's a scary chef, she's so good. She's, like, was totally in charge, and she picked out the menu and what she wanted to make. It's like, fine, whatever you want to make is fine. And, um, and then I get this frantic, frantic call from her the day before, the meal that she planned, she said, Elizabeth, we can't find fresh sardines. 
And she'd picked the fresh sardines to fry from one of these uh, menus. I said, well, you know, first of all, you picked it out. Second of all, let's fry. She said, maybe I can, I can fry anchovies. I said, well, that sounds like canned anchovies. I said, that doesn't sound very good. Should be something fresh. She said, well, what can I get? I can't, I can't get fresh sardines. I said, oysters. And she said, what? You can use oysters? I said, you can use oysters. You're in D.C. You have Chesapeake Bay right there. You know, use oysters. Use what you have. And I would much rather you guys use whatever you have than try and get, you know, some weird fish that I mention in this book because we have it in the Mediterranean. Use canned tomatoes if fresh tomatoes aren't in season. If you can't find arugula, use watercress. You know, use the things that you have. And, And it's more important to sort of have the sort of vague semblance of my recipe where you're relaxed and you have really great friends around the table. Anyway, so that's sort of the story of my book, but I'd love to answer any questions that anybody has. Yes? How do you think food has changed since you've been Well, some of the food hasn't changed at all. Obviously, traditional things, but there was a while when food was sort of like traditional trattoria were sort of not Either they couldn't get really good ingredients or they couldn't make a living buying better ingredients and the ingredients were sort of uh, going down. So a lot of the traditional trattoria weren't as good anymore. And, and then there's a lot of you know, touristy places too, which are obvious. But the great, greatest thing that I've seen recently, the new trend, is that people in their 20s, you know, that have gone away maybe and are coming back to Italy and restarting the whole idea of a really good, uh, like let's say, trattoria, where it's not about fanciness, but it's about the quality of the food on the plate. And those are really exciting. Like Marigold is one of them. Um, uh, Santo Palato is another in Rome. And there's, they're really great. And so they're, they're, they're cooking like high quality food at reasonable prices because they don't, you know, there's, there's no tablecloth to wash. Uh, you know, they're, they're just using tumblers for everything. And that's sort of the nicest change I've seen. All right. Thank you to Elizabeth Minkeely for visiting us in Seattle. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of The Italian Table and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Lara Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.